Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is J.B. Brubaker, who's the lead guitarist and one of the primary songwriters in August Burns Red. And they've got over eight album releases as well as a Grammy Award nomination and a bunch of other award nominations. August Burns Red is one of the most well-known names in metal. I introduce you, J.B. Brubaker. Welcome to the Riff Heart Podcast. How are you? I'm well. How are you guys? Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Doing well. Dude, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you since maybe that day that we recorded that acoustic guitar song. That's totally it. It would have been in 2011, and it you was. recorded the uh, internal Canon reprise track, like a bonus track for Leveler Deluxe Edition. The OG Leveler. That's right, the OG. Yeah, I I remember that day very, very clearly. In 2011, when you guys came in, you guys were one of the very, very first projects that I got to work on at that house. Like I had just moved in. I don't remember what month you guys were there, but it was very, very close to when I moved in. I moved in in January. We were there in February into March of 2011. Okay, that's right. And uh, something interesting to me. So first of all, I just want to say congrats on even getting to the point where that is a re- doable album because <laughs> it just shows you've stuck it out but you guys had already stuck it out for a while something that struck me was i remember we were setting up matt's drums and he said something to me that made me feel old he said i'm into old school bands so to me uh, old school <laughs> is like cannibal corpse you know, right. yeah, stuff like that. I'm excited to hear who he said it was old yeah. school. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I just, I'm inspired by old school bands like Unearth As I Lay Dying, Chimera <laughs> or something like that. I was like, oh man, I'm old. This is old school now. I don't agree with that statement myself. I mean, As I Lay Dying was old school. I mean, they, they had like a huge record in, in 2007. It was 2011. <laughs> But they had one in 2003, right? Like, I remember them breaking sure. out, but still. You're right. Yeah. Okay. But is that old school? I don't know. I didn't think so. <laughs> I, I just thought it was a surprising, it was a surprising thing to hear. I was uh, honestly not familiar with any of you at that point because I was kind of very into my little death metal world. But uh, I was really blown away by hanging out with you guys because of uh, the amount of focus 
that you had as a band. I know that at that point, by 2011, you guys were already very established, but I wasn't really used to bands where there was that much focus. Like I remember the amount that Matt practiced rivaled any of the, you know, any of the badass death metal drummers that I've ever worked with. And I remember your level of focus with the writing was uh, nonstop. And then I remember also your guys's business sense was unlike any bands that I had ever encountered, except for obviously the very biggest ones. And so I just remember thinking, this is, this is a band that's got their shit together. You don't see that every day. <laughs> and so here we are 10 years later and it's still going. So it's, first of all, I just want to say it's really, really cool to see. But what I'm wondering is, do you think that the way that you guys focus and communicate is part of why you've been able to stick it out this long? It certainly hasn't hurt. I think that there has been an endless drive with the band. And one of the reasons is there's just been a really slow growth for for us forever. Um, it's never been like an explosion. We never had that like ABR is blowing up. It was always just the slow but steady kind of climb. And for that reason, I feel like we've been able to stay motivated just knowing that we feel like we haven't reached our full potential yet, both as musicians and, I guess, in popularity within the metal scene. Like, I, I feel like there's always growth to be done, and that definitely keeps us motivated. And I think that as we've done this longer and longer, we actually take the career we've been given less and less for granted, especially after 2020. I mean, we recognize how much of a gift it is to be able to do a band as a career. Like that is, that's like winning the lottery. It kind of is. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> we're, we're really, really fortunate. And there's no rhyme or reason to why one band makes it and another one doesn't. I feel like it's so like right place at the right time. August Burns Red could write a song, give it to an unknown band and have them put it out or re-record it as their own thing and put it out and it might do nothing for them. But if we put it out because of, you know, where we're at in our career, it might be like a really popular song for us or like, so there's like this, once you've kind of cracked the cracked into the, the scene or developed some popularity, like you just have so many opportunities and advantages that you don't get as a young band just starting out. So I feel like I feel we're lucky to have cracked the mold in the first place and then just been able to have this slow but steady growth for a really long time now. I think it is down to luck as well, but also just down to hard work. Like the bands that can deal with touring, sleeping in the back of 15-seater passenger vans, not showering for two weeks at a time. Um, the ones that can get through that stage and then come out the other side are generally the ones that will do well. So I think it's hard work as well. <laughs> yeah, there's hard work. And I think that that hard work when we were young and, and really grinding in those those early years, you know, like you're saying, driving ourselves around in a van and sleeping in the van, sleeping on floors, blah, 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 all that. It's easy to stay motivated when you're doing that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's still fresh and new and exciting. Tour isn't this like old hat project at that point. It's exciting to go new places and then you're starting to get to tour with bands that you really respect and you're supporting bigger tours. And for us, as long as we were seeing like that slow growth or experiencing new things, like there was no 
reason to not stay motivated. And we just have constantly been able to find new reasons to keep ourselves motivated. And, and like I was saying before, also recognizing the fact that what we're doing is a gift and we're very lucky to be in the position we're in. So there's a few things that, that come to mind based off of everything you just said. So there is luck, obviously, luck that you guys met each other, luck that music resonated with the audience when it did, you know, that kind of stuff. Luck that whatever manager took you guys on at a, the right point in your career was willing to, you know, those kinds of things, that's all luck. But then, but the other side of it is uh, communication, keeping yourself mentally in the game and then a ton of hard work. Like, like you guys said, I think that even at the point you were at 10 years ago, when you were recording the first version of Leveler, you were at a point where lots of bands would have considered that the end goal to get to that size, I think. To get to that size and place in your career, I definitely think that a lot of bands see that as as the pinnacle. Like, if they could get that far, that's kind of as far as they've thought. So it says a lot that even at that point, you still saw room for growth. And I, I actually think that that is very similar to what keeps great musicians going back and practicing more or keeps entrepreneurs trying to grow their companies. It's the same thing is that no matter where you're at, you can always see that there's room for improvement, like whether it's guitar playing or, you know, with my companies, like uh, what we're doing now is stuff that at a certain point in time, seemed like this huge mountain that was unclimbable, but now I just see more mountains to go climb. So I, th I think that it's a natural but important quality to have that uh, no matter what you achieve, you need to be able to see what can be better and where you can still go and you need to actively be thinking about those things or you can get comfortable, rest on your laurels. That's death, I think. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And like you said, with regards to like bands who got to the point where we were at when we put out Leveler in 2011. Okay, yeah. If you would have asked us in 2005 on our first record, like this is where you're going to get to on your fourth record, we would have been like, whoa, we would have made it. But like you said, once you get to that new point, new goals come to mind and you see what could be in the future. There's always something bigger and better to be done. I think it's just a matter of setting a goal, reaching it, and then reevaluating and setting new goals. Our brains are not meant to stand still, I don't think. We're meant to stay in motion and keep doing, keep going for more. Because if you think back to survival times, what was an achievement? An achievement was uh, capturing some food. <laughs> but what happens if you stop going for that? You die. <laughs> so I think that our brains are not wired to just be comfortable with acquiring something, you know, whether it's an achievement or a possession or whatever. There's almost like a timer on how long you can even be excited about it for. Like just out of curiosity, what's the longest you've ever been excited by an achievement? I'll compare it to finishing a new record. When we finish an album, it'll be like my favorite thing to listen to for a few months, maybe three months. And then the record comes out and I'm like, okay, on to the next one. And the fans are just getting it, just getting it at that time, you know? <laughs> so I, I think that's a 
a good example. You get three months. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I read up on this stuff, and uh, what I read was that the 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 satisfaction period for people tends to last from three hours to three months. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. Yeah, because yeah, you get bored yeah. of a job after about three months usually, don't you? So that makes total sense. Yeah, it's just interesting because I guess um, when it comes to your albums, you're not recording them yourselves, right? You guys go into the studio. We are not. Yeah, that's probably why I don't have that three months. <laughs> I guess if you're the one doing all of the engineering and everything, it would be a different, you, you get burnt on it faster. But I'm, I'm on the musician side, I'm like, cool, I have all these songs in my head or in Tabit, you know, and some, we, we still write in these super archaic MIDI programs. Hey, it works. With Guitar Tab. Yeah, it does. I guess so. But uh, it's like I finally get to hear my creations come to life. Like final. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm excited to listen to them for a while. They've been in my head for God knows how long. And then I can enjoy them as a finished product. But what about like the excitement from getting signed or you know, accolades, stuff like that. First week sales, you know, that kind of stuff. How long does the excitement from something like that last for you? Not long. First week sales, honestly, you hit, you hit the, the zenith and then you, you slide down over the next couple hours and a couple days yeah. later, you're like, cool, okay. <laughs> couple that, hours, that's that what that. I figured. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's kind of my point is those types of things as cool as they seem on the outside. And I mean, they are cool, obviously. It is awesome to pull that off. But psychologically speaking, they're not going to make you feel fulfilled and they're not going to be what sustains a project because we're unable to feel, we're unable to feel excited about those things for longer than just a very short period of time. So we have to keep looking for the thing that will get us excited and will get us uh, passionate about keeping on going. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me because I've always thought that, uh, that awards and things like that are whatever, like I've never, I've never wanted them. And so actually I put some on my wall as an experiment, but I just remember when getting them, I wouldn't go actually retrieve them I wouldn't go to ceremonies or anything like that because my thoughts were, why am I going to put in all this effort for something that I'm not going to care about in five minutes? <laughs> and from the outside, I think people have not been able to understand that. But I, I feel like anyone who's been in that position knows that it's just a very, very short window of awesomeness before you're like, all right, well, what's that's all that was. What's next? I know what that is, though. It's the that you enjoy the process more than the result, which is why having goals there for you so you can have the process of getting to the goal, which I think that most people are kind of wired that way. To want the goal or to want the process? To want the process, the chase, so to speak. So I think that the true fulfillment comes in loving the process, but people think that they're after the result. Yeah. Then they get the result and... In general, it's not nearly as cool as they thought it was, but the but the process is what they were all about the whole time. They need to rearrange their thinking a little bit, I think, to realize that, wait a second, the thing that kept me up at night, the thing that I was uh, working 14 hours a day at, that's the process, wasn't 
the result. What do you think about that, JB? I would definitely say for myself that I also really enjoy the process. For example, we're in the process of planning and executing a live stream right now. And I've really enjoyed that setup and planning. And there's an awful lot that goes into it. And it'll culminate on one night. And I won't even get to see, you know, the fan reaction or anything. And then it's over. <laughs> and then it's over, right. And then I guess, you know, the, you have the satisfaction of of reading social media comments about it. And that's kind of the the ego payoff, I guess, if, if it was good. Or the ego destroyer, depending on what right. day it is. <laughs> right. If, and if we suck, then people are going to be bombed and not say good things. But yeah, I love to have a project. I have to have a project. It's like part of my being. And I guess I am definitely more interested in the process of executing it than the end goal, which is a shame because the end goal is is important, I think. Oh, it matters. Yeah. I'm curious how you feel about this. So to me, the end goal matters a lot. I, I need to feel like what I'm putting my time into is wise and fruitful. It's going to pay off, whether it's going to pay off, I don't just mean financially or whatever. It could be, it could pay off in terms of knowledge. It could pay off in terms of me meeting people that are amazing. Like there's lots of different ways it could pay off, but I do need the result to be a positive result or I want it to be a positive result. Um, so I do think it's important, but I don't think it's the everything, which is where I think a lot of people get confused is by blowing the importance of the result out of proportion and like kind of being cool with hating the process as long as they get the result, which that's the part that kind of, I don't think is smart. And also I don't think is sustainable. There is some element of that that you do do though, like the gym. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I'm human. I think that there's like certain instances where it's, both. Dude, but I don't actually hate the gym. Okay. I hate going to the gym. <laughs> There's a difference. Yeah, okay. Let's take a The decision to actually put on the shoes and go down there, that's the hardest part. That's yeah. like where all the torture is. Once I'm down there, once I'm outside, it's fine. It's not so bad. Makes I sense. I don't hate it. Yeah. I hate going down there. Is there anything like that? JB, just out of curiosity, any part of this where you do feel like, okay, maybe there is a part of this process that is not so enjoyable, but I do need to do it because it is that important to keeping the the results happening. Yeah, there's an obvious one for me. It's practicing my guitar. <laughs> I don't enjoy practicing my guitar. I'd rather do almost anything associated with August Burns Red than practice my instrument. Like I'd much rather write write new music than like drill and get my chops sharp. I actually think that writing is part of practice though. It just seems, again, it's just process driven though, isn't it? Like for me, I don't really like to go to the gym, but I enjoy playing certain sports. And even though I'm technically doing those sports and exercising in the process of almost being exactly what I do at the gym, um, but for some reason in my mind, it doesn't seem like the same thing. And I think it's the same when you go to write music because you're constantly expanding on your vocabulary of the instrument, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but I think with JB, and JB, correct me if I'm wrong, are you always writing at the guitar? Or sometimes you're just writing 
at the computer typing things into Tabit, right? Well, I always have a guitar in my hand if I'm doing that. Okay, good. John, I, I see what you're saying with regards to, yeah, writing is kind of like practicing. I actually think that writing is something that you can practice in itself. You know, songwriting Definitely. is something that takes practice. But let's say we're preparing for a tour and I have to learn a bunch <laughs> of old songs and, or something like that. You know, that's when I really just have to sit and practice. I can't sit and riff on new ideas. I have to drill old things that I'm like, oh, yeah, this song. I always have sucked at this part. I need to drill this because, you know, I, I don't like drilling. I understand. I think I hate it too. <laughs> but you do it. I do it because I have to. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to embarrass myself. Is what it comes down to. And let the other guys down, I guess. Well, let let the fans down. Yes, yeah, so it seems like a worthwhile investment. Of absolutely. Yeah. So okay. So that said, as someone who doesn't like to practice, who plays in a band that uh, dude, you guys cannot wing this shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. yeah, there's more technical bands out there, but like. You can't just wing the stuff that you guys play. Like, it's challenging stuff. So you do need to keep your skills up to a certain point just to be able to play your band's songs. Do you consider that more like a sprint or a marathon? And what I mean by that is, you know, keeping your skills at a certain level year-round with, like, a little bit of practice here and there? Or is it one of these things where the rest of the time you're more writing, creating, and then when there's a reason to drill, then sprint it like for a couple of weeks before a tour or something. I feel like I keep like a baseline level of skills for sure, but I sprint when it's time to, to perform, you know? So let's talk about that baseline level. How do you keep that? What do you do? I think that's just kind of achieved by writing. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> by just having the guitar in your hand and just the act of playing what you're writing is enough to keep you from sucking? I think so. Okay. I might go six weeks without really playing much. During the pandemic, for instance, There, when we came off the road and we had Guardians coming out um, and we weren't going to be doing anything for a long time, I didn't play guitar very much for a while. I sh that's, that's not entirely true because I did do some writing. Six weeks would be a really long time for me to go without playing my guitar. Maybe two weeks would be a more realistic break. And I definitely see skills decline during that time, you know, just finger dexterity and things like that. Well, they are perishable skills. Absolutely. Just like going to the gym. If you, yeah. if you build your body up and then you stop it, your, your muscles are going to shrink back down to. It ain't going to stay, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. <laughs> it's, it's such a bummer. Yes. When you sprint, how do you structure that? Do you just learn your material or do you do exercises that are kind of to develop the techniques needed for that material? It's sort of like I'm cramming for the exam. I relearn the songs and parts, and then I will drill the parts that I suck at, bust out the metronome, play them slow, which is the most boring way, but the most effective. It's just not fun, but it really works to play slow and, and build, build your skills the right way. I know how to do it, and I know the right way to do it. Sometimes I just <laughs> take the easy way, I guess, which is... Or I, I guess I shouldn't say the easy way. I, I don't always do it the right way. Sometimes I'll just, like, if we have a set prepared, I'll have the, the set ready to go, and I'll, I'll be practicing back to our, our playback session. And 
I'd be like, oh, I really blew that solo, but the click's still running and I'm still playing. So I'm not going to stop um, and go back and like work at that part that I just sucked at. And then next thing you know, I'm like two, three songs later into the set and it's out of my head till I come back around and play it again. So in some ways though, you are practicing something else by doing that. You're practicing not letting yourself train wreck over a mistake. Mm, that's a good point. I'm not saying that to make you feel better or anything like that. Like I actually, no, it did because it, good. <laughs> well, see unintended consequences. The reason I'm saying that is because I think one of the skills that a pro level performer needs to have needs, like this is, it's not a choice. You have to be able to do this is they need to be able to fuck up like they need to be able to have a complete brain fart at the most crucial <laughs> moment where the spotlight is on them. Just mess it up and then keep going mm-hmm. like nothing happened. Just get right back in the game. So I think that actually like, yeah, so, okay. So maybe you didn't go back and drill that solo that's practicing the solo specifically, but you still are drilling the technique or the ability to mess up and be right back in the set and not throw the rest of the guys off or fuck the show up. Right. That's a good point. Also, it goes a little bit deeper as well when it goes to playing live, in my opinion. There's a certain amount of practice that you can do at home, but that kind of completely changes once you get in a rehearsal spot or even on stage because you can't practice being tight to humans at your house with a fully recorded, you know, version of the song, even if it doesn't even have your parts on it, because it just feels completely different going from sitting with your guitar and standing up, going to being sweating and having all those lights on it. It's just a case of, I think that drilling the parts and making sure playing them right is about as much as you can do when you're practicing at home. And then everything else kind of changes around it. There's this other element that happens when you're playing live which you cannot practice, which is how to play when adrenaline, yeah. When when you have adrenaline going through your system, like your ability to remember things and to use fine motor skills changes completely. Like it degrades significantly, something like 30 or 40%. This is why, for instance, soldiers will have drills with live fire and explosions and do crazy stuff like that. The idea is so that they get as close as possible to the real thing and so that they get their fear up and their adrenaline up and then still have to perform the duty feeling like that. And when you play live, you get that adrenaline surge. And so no matter what, as accurate as your practice is, you cannot simulate that. You just can't. It's impossible. You can't give yourself an adrenaline dump sitting in your bedroom. There's only so far that it can go. But that's why what JB was doing, in my opinion, John, is really positive, is training the muscle memory and instinct to just keep going. Because when the adrenaline is going, if you mess up and you could have a complete brain fart and just black out completely on something that you've practiced 8 million times. But if your muscle memory is there and your instincts, like if it's on an instinctual level, you'll be able to just keep going. Yep. So Totally agree. What do you think, JB? Has that ever happened to you? For sure. I've definitely completely forgotten parts on stage. (laughs) And it's embarrassing. But yeah, you just jump back in as soon as you 
can get back on track. You know, <laughs> it really sucks when you're playing like a odd meter part and you're like, and you, you get off and you're like, shit, I don't even know where we're at. Like I am completely lost in this section. And then, then you're kind of at the mercy of waiting for the, the part to change. But fortunately in the kind of music we play, the parts change pretty frequently. So <laughs> you're not out for too long. <laughs> That's helpful. Yeah. What's that like? Like forgetting something? Is it just like a total just blackness? I'm sure you've experienced this when you're on stage and you're just kind of going through the motions of playing the show and your mind is thinking about something else and your muscle memory is just sort of doing its thing, which is honestly most of what playing live is. It's it's a lot of muscle memory. Depending on where my head's at, I might not be thinking about what I'm playing at all in that moment. I, I might be thinking about where I'm going to eat after the show or, <laughs> you know, something stupid like that. So if if you do forget where you're at, it's it's like this... Oh, whoa. Yeah, I need to like come back to the present and refocus what I'm doing here because I completely forgot what I was supposed to play there. I must admit it doesn't happen as often as it might have when I was when I was younger. Just I think, like you said, as you practice being in that moment, that is helpful. So we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of experience performing live. So I feel like you know, it doesn't happen to me as often as it used to. But if it does happen, then there's this thing that happens to me where if I screwed up a part the night before really bad or I forgot my part, it's going to become a problem for a few days in a row. Yeah. Every time we'll come to that section in a set, I'll go, oh, here comes that part that you can't play right now. <laughs> and then I'll, bl I'll blow it again, you know, and then I have to drill it, drill it, drill it backstage before the show or sound check or whatever. And then until I can nail it, it's going to be in my head. It's It's just like... I need to conquer that again to be able to perform it without it becoming like a psychological barricade for me. It makes perfect sense. That it's so weird, man, the psychological game that you have to play in order to be able to pull off a set really, really well. I think it's very similar to the psychological games that athletes need to play with themselves, especially like in baseball that a batter needs to go through because... I know that the moment that they start to get in their own head and, you know, get into a slump or whatever, that slump can just be perpetuated because their skills didn't go down. It's just their head is in a whole different sort of mind space. I think that that's very applicable to uh, guitar and music. Totally agree. I, especially metal music. It requires a fair amount of skill compared to some other genres. I'm not saying that other genres don't have insane players. But when it comes to just riffing around the fretboard, it's a, it's quote unquote, very athletic, I think for the hands, it's just the nature of the music. And I guess there's varying degrees of that. But it's, it's one of the reasons that I have to train and practice to keep at the level that I'm trying to achieve. And that if I don't, just like an athlete or a, a, a bodybuilder in the gym, if he doesn't keep lifting those weights, his muscles are going to go away. And if we don't keep practicing the music we wrote and, and practicing the hard parts, we're not going to be able to play them anymore. It's going to go away. Speaking of physical things, you had mentioned in the uh, pre-interview that you felt like your playing had plateaued as a result of some bad habits or the way that you hold your guitar pick. Can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think that the way you hold a pick, the way that you um, attack with the right hand, if you're right-handed, is not everything, but it's so, so crucial. 
it wasn't a problem for me for a long time. But as my skills got better and I was able to play faster and faster, I, I felt like I reached this point where, like you said, I had plateaued. And I think it's the result of the way I hold my pick, which is for anyone who doesn't know, which most of you, most of you wouldn't, I hold it between my middle finger and my thumb. And then I bring on my my pointer finger often, depending on what I'm playing. If I'm strumming chords, I'll be holding the pick with my pointer finger and my middle finger and my thumb. If I'm chugging or playing tremolo picking stuff, then it'll just be all middle finger and thumb. And I move my pick around in my hand constantly. It's never stationary. And even to the point where if I have a rest, I'll just flip my pick over in my hand. Like I, it's, it's like this nervous energy that's constantly going on in my right hand. And I'm sure there's a lot of bad habits with, with regards to that. But I look at things like really fast arpeggios or something or, you know, double picking arpeggios and things like that. I, I cannot do that stuff with my, with the way I hold my pick. Like I just, I would need to reprogram that muscle memory. And that feels really daunting at this point after almost 20 years of playing my guitar like this and teaching myself all these bad habits that are completely ingrained in me. And I was, you know, speaking in the pre-interview, I said, okay, cool. Yeah. I could like relearn how to do that. But as soon as I go back and play old songs, I'm going to go back to the old habits because that's where the muscle memory is. I, I feel like it would be very, I feel like it'd be next to impossible to reprogram the way I play all these old songs I've been playing for years and years. Maybe I could redo a couple parts differently, but when I'm on stage there in the moment, it's like we were saying earlier, the muscle memory takes over. Even if you've been drilling something differently, it's really hard to change those mechanics, I think. I know what you mean. I think um, actually there's a guy that played on your latest record, Misha, who completely mm -hmm. reprogrammed how he held a pick. Did he? Yeah, yeah, he completely changed it. Yeah, we spoke with him about it on one of the episodes. <laughs> but he used to hold his pick very similar to you, JB, with a thumb and two fingers. Um, okay. And this is going back to probably first and second periphery records, so periphery one and two. And then Nolly started showing him how to change his pick grip, and he had to go back, and he said it took him about a year and a half to really get it drilled Yikes. into him. But at the same time, like, I I firmly believe that as humans, it's about being as comfortable as possible. And I think that maybe with the pick rip you've got, there's actually probably workarounds that you could probably do with the way that you do it now. Because, you know, I mean, just as an example, Marty Friedman has one of the weirdest picking techniques I've ever seen. And that guy just shreds everywhere. <laughs> you know? True. Um, True. Yeah. But I understand where you're coming from as well. Yeah, because I have quite a strange pick grip in comparison to some guitar players. But that's just because I only hit in one direction. <laughs> oh. Is, you only, do you only down pick? Yeah. Wow. James Hetfield for life. <laughs> yeah. Hey. You're in good company. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even occasionally, like you were talking about how you, um, the amount you move the pick around in your hands and that it's not stationary. I, I find that I do that too. Constantly readjusting to get comfortable, leaving mm -hmm. more of the pick when 
Um, for example, I need to hit harder because I know that if I've got more pick there, the likelihood is I'm actually going to hit the strings. Um, so I'm constantly adjusting as well. And I don't think that that's necessarily a negative, but as I say, everyone's built differently. Even something as simple as hitting a pinch harmonic, really difficult for me, the way I hold my pick. Like I have to do a big readjustment yep. with my entire picking hand to hit a squeal. So if I'm playing like, if I'm chugging like, and then have to like bust a squeal out, I, I cannot do that the way I hold my pick. Like I need time to set up to hit the pinch, which is a problem. <laughs> it's always been a problem and I don't see myself fixing it anytime soon, but it's just, it's, I, I know my limitations as a player. And that's one of them. Do you think people who are just getting started on guitar, they should be listening to this and coming away with, well, JB did it his own way and uh, his band is doing great. I'll do it my own way. Or do you think they should be listening to this and saying, well, I'd like to avoid those problems in the future. I should probably start with a proper picking grip. I think that you have to evaluate what your goals are as a player. Yeah. If your goal is to become a super shredder, then you better fix it now because it's going to be a lot harder to fix later. If your goals are to, I think that you can write amazing music and really great songs without doing everything in the most efficient or by the book way. So, which is, which was always my approach. I can write songs without proper technique. You know, I can, I can write cool parts. Can I shred like Misha? No, like I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but do you want to? I don't want to put the time in to get to that level. So I guess not. No, maybe 10 years ago. Sure. I, I might have. I just don't want to devote the time to getting that sick. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I had a very similar mindset as that. And I always used to believe that the amount of time that I would spend writing a solo, I could write an entire song because it's probably got more parts in the solo than the whole song. So yeah. And it's all about the goal, isn't it? whether or not you want to follow the complete technique and be someone like Misha or someone like Wes or do it your own way and just write sick riffs. Yeah. And I think that there's a place for both, but I look at something like you, you can scroll Instagram and see endless, amazing guitar players posting videos of themselves, just shredding circles around players like me, which is awesome. But and I, and I love watching that as a guitar enthusiast. I love watching people shred and play really hard stuff. But I don't necessarily like listening to it on a record. There's a time and a place for it. It's a lot of fun to watch live, but I don't want to go 100 miles an hour all the time. I think it's good to identify what you're going for. Like you said, you know what your goals are. I think that that is uh, one of the most important things you can do but in life, but especially as a musician, because there's... 8 million things you can choose to focus on. Like for real, you can, there's so much stuff you can focus on. And uh, one of the things I remember from going to Berkeley is that uh, one thing that held a lot of people back in life, in my opinion, was trying to learn everything and get good at everything. Now, like I admire the ambition and it's cool. Try to learn as much as you can. But a lot of people felt like they needed to be expert level at everything, expert level at playing fast, expert level at reading, expert level at charts, expert level at jazz, expert level at every single thing. And there aren't enough hours in the day to do that. That doesn't really give you much of a direction either. I think it's much more important to 
yeah, try to be well-rounded if possible, but more importantly, finding a direction and just going for that relentlessly, I think is way, way, way more important and beneficial. Sounds like you did that part. Yeah, my focus was always on the songs, more so than than the chops. As I got better at songwriting and playing naturally, my skills improved for a long time. And I feel like I, when I was younger, I was a lot more prone to seeking out other guitar players on tour who were better than me and sitting down with them and being like, yo, teach me how to do this, teach me how to do that, which was a lot of fun for me. And it definitely taught me new techniques that I then was able to utilize in ABR stuff. But I haven't done that as much in recent years. And I think it's a result of ABR is usually the old band on tour now. Like we're the the band taking out the young bands. And we're just not as social as we used to be on the road. We're social with each other within our camp, you know, our, our band and crew. But if it's a band that is a younger band, you know, I'm, I'm 36. If it's a band that's comprised of guys 23 to 25, you know, there's a bit of a interest gap there. And we're just not hanging like we used to be with bands that we're not already friends with on tour, which might make us dicks. I don't know. I mean, we're not, we're not being mean to anyone. We're just, we're just more reclusive, I think, than we might've been. Were you at a different phase in your life? Yeah. I'm not looking to make friends with every single person on every single tour like I was when I was a kid. And for that reason, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not talking guitar as much as I would have with other players and things like that, that just were ways that I was improving myself as a player. I think it also points to the idea that people should take advantage of those years. For sure. <laughs> this is not to discourage anyone who got into the game late or anything. I think you can get into the game late and still do great things. And we just spoke to uh, um, to someone who started guitar at 19 and who's amazing. But there's certain types of energy and focus and uh, life situations that come with being a certain age that are more uh, conducive to certain types of development. So like when you're in high school, that's a much more conducive environment for just sitting there and practicing all day and getting really, really technically good. You're not going to be able to really develop your onstage skills or your network and any of that kind of stuff. But one thing you can do when you're in that age group is practice your balls off basically. There's different things that are just more age appropriate. And so, and I think that when people are on tour in their 20s, they really should capitalize on the hangout aspect. One thing I'm sure you noticed, I sure have noticed this, friends that I made on tour in my 20s or in the industry in my 20s when I was mega social are really coming into play now. These relationships from 10, 15 years ago from that time period still matter. And I'm glad that I did that stuff then. If I was to go on tour now, I don't think I'd be social. Yeah, I'm not as social as I used to be, but I agree with what you just said with regards to relationships you established when you were younger. It's not even if I've kept in touch with these people, but that foundation, it's like this mutual, mutually known, like, yeah, we might not be keeping in touch, but when we see each other again or when we talk, like we're we're right back to where we were. Do you know what I mean? Does that make yes. sense? Mm-hmm. Like if, if I see, if I see a band that I haven't toured with in 12 years, but we play the same festival in Germany or something, it would be like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Like it, it's, you just fall right back into where you were. <laughs> and I think that's an understanding amongst people who do a lot of touring. You understand that you're meeting lots of people 
and establishing these relationships, but you can't nurture all of them. There's just too many. I was just going to say, it's also based on the, the, the touring level as to how social you can be. Obviously, the smaller your band is, the smaller the venue, you're kind of all on top of each other in this tiny little backstage room <laughs> trying to find a shower. So it's kind of like it's different at that level versus say you've got your own tour bus with your crew in it. It's a different it's a different mindset of touring because there's a big difference between seeing these people from three o'clock in the afternoon, parking at the same McDonald's rest stop, and then seeing them again less than 12 hours later versus just the three hours at the venue. And in that time period, you have to eat. Um, you don't see them as much. So I think that that also plays a big part in the social aspect. And it's not about being a dick or anything like that. It's just different than what it was. I don't think it's just touring, though. I can give you a perfect example. Your publicist, Amy. Shout out, Amy, by the way. <laughs> she was the publicist at Roadrunner when my band was on Roadrunner 15 years ago. That's where I know her from. We didn't really talk much for a few years, not for any reason other than we just didn't. Uh, like you said, like you're not always in touch with everybody. When um, I got back in touch with her about the Riff Hard podcast, it's like no time had passed, basically. These relationships, yeah, I agree with the tour ones, but I think it's, it's more than that. It's uh, all the relationships you make in that hyper-social period, a lot of them will matter down the road. I've noticed it many, many, many times. But yeah, for sure. Like when you're on a bigger tour and you have your own bus and you're not on top of everybody, there's less opportunities to be social. But I still think that when people are 25, they're going to find a way to party right. and hang out. That's a good point. Just because that's the age they're at. Sure. I'm, I'm married with a kid. I'm not looking to go out and party after yeah. the, the set. And <laughs> you make a great point about like, yeah, one of the most important reasons why we don't interact with other bands on tour as much as we might have in the past is because if we are a band on the bus, on a bus, and all the other bands are in bands, we're showing up earlier, sound checking. And then by the time we're done sound checking, we're out doing whatever when the other bands are getting there, loading in, setting the stage. And then at the end of the night, the other bands are leaving, going to their hotels or driving to wherever the next show might be. Whereas we're getting off stage, showering, getting something to eat, and then, you know, waiting till bus call, like going out and doing whatever. Like, it's just, a, it's a very different schedule if you're on a bus versus if you're in a van. And that makes it difficult to socialize as much as it, as, as it would have been if all the bands were in vans like they were for many years when we were starting out. Or even if you're in Europe and you're all sharing the same bus. That's, right. a, that's a party too, obviously, you know, those av of avocado tours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've never done that. We've never done one of those. We've, oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, we, but yeah, like never say die. We, we've we've been offered them a, a bunch of times, but honestly, we were at the point in our career where we weren't comfortable doing like three, four bands in one bus. We've shared buses with bands a bunch yeah. and it's been fun. You know, we did it as recently as 2019. We, we shared a bus with Whitechapel. Uh, in Europe. And it was awesome. I loved hanging out with those guys. and It was a great experience. But boy, I don't think I could do like 20, 22 bodies in one bus sharing <laughs> yeah. one bathroom. Like, don't. Not, not, <laughs> don't not at this point in my life. No thanks. Yeah, yeah, don't do it. So it's very interesting for me to have 
seen that there's a re-recording of Leveler. At first, I had to go look and was like, that's the one I worked on, right? Because, you know, names. <laughs> I'm horrible with song and album names, but I was sure that that was the one. I was like, yeah, that's the one. I heard the track that was released with Misha and was like, ah, yes, this sounds phenomenal. But it was it was interesting because uh, that's uh, I'm not used to that sort of thing. Not many things that I've worked on get re-recorded or remixed or whatever, even though I know it happens. Um, want to say, though, like I just said, I think it sounds amazing and you guys made the right decision. It sounds fucking great. But I want to hear a little bit more about why you decided to do that because um it um didn't sound bad before or whatever but i'm curious like what is it that you were hoping to get out of it that you didn't get before we've been in the process of revisiting older records when their 10-year anniversaries come around we've done a couple 10-year anniversary tours and we've remixed two records before leveler we've remixed messengers and constellations for their 10-year anniversaries and Leveler turns 10 this year. As we all know, the pandemic has really made things difficult with regards to touring musicians and getting on the road. So our plan would have been to have done a 10-year anniversary tour where we performed the album. That didn't seem like an option to us. So we, and we had, we had time on our hands. Honestly, we, we needed a project and we wanted to do something special for Leveler. So we decided instead of just remixing it and, you know, doing a, 10-year vinyl pressing or something with a remix, we're going to we're gonna do it right. We're going to fully re-record the album from scratch and we're going to dissect the songs and change some things and we're going to make it special versus just, oh, cool, they remixed the album. So that's what we did. We worked with uh, Carson Slovak and Grant McFarlane who have been producing us for a long time now. They're close friends of ours and uh, work out Carson the same areas. As, yeah, they roll. Yeah. I'm actually uh, recording this in their studio right now. <laughs> so, um, tell them I said hello. Uh, I've had them I on will. Nail the Mix twice and love those guys. Yeah, totally. I will absolutely tell them that. So, we decided to re record the record from the ground up and we're self releasing it because we're in between record contracts right now, which is a really unique position for August Burns Red to be in because we've been signed since 2005. We've, we've been at the record label and haven't been able to do releases ourselves. So we had time on our hands with the pandemic and a unique situation with the label. And it's just the the stars sort of aligned for us to do this level or 10th anniversary edition and to, to do it all ourselves. And it's been an awesome experience because we got to learn a lot about self-releasing and it, we're a self-managed band as well. So we've always been very hands-on, but this is a whole new aspect of our business that we've never handled ourselves. So I've had a lot of fun learning about releasing a record um, without the help of a record label. And with regards to Level or the, the re-recording of it, it was fun to revisit the songs and change tunings around and rewrite guitar solos and stuff and then get this really slick modern production on the record. It sounds like you've never heard the record before. Like it, Yeah, that is what that is what it sounds like. And just for the record, before uh, you know anyone accuses me of anything, um, all I did was <laughs> assist on the original version and some, some of the stuff was recorded at my, uh, then studio. Yeah. You were, you were helping out. I know you did a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I was helping out, 
but just making sure people don't think I was saying that I produced it or mixed it or anything like that. Right on. So, no, I totally get but, that. Uh, I worked on it. I think it'll be cool for people who might not be familiar with the record to check it out. And it's one of those things where if you had only heard the original, you might be like, ah, okay, cool. Yeah, this sounds this sounds cool or whatever. It's a little bit dated, blah, blah, blah. But if you hear the new version, you're like, whoa, this, this sounds modern and relevant and slick. And I, I think it's going to turn a whole new potential generation of August Burns Red fans onto this record who might have only been listening to us for, you know, our last three records instead of our our first four or something. You know, we've been a band so long. I feel like we have fans who are into like a core of our discography, like th these three albums or those three albums. And I don't know if you guys can uh, relate to that with other bands that you like. Like yeah, for there's, sure. there's bands yeah, I like a series of records, but maybe not their whole discography. Absolutely. I also feel like sometimes when a band does a remix or a re-record, the question is why like yeah. because some they because they had something that was perfect in some cases there's a way to do it where you can really further the vision for it and i can give you a perfect example is opeth with uh their deliverance record they got it remixed and not like andy sneep did a bad job on the first one it's andy sneep he never does a bad job. The <laughs> remix is much more Opeth. Let's put it that way. It's natural sounding. It's organic sounding. Like it sounds like the death metal classic rock band that they are. And it just, it like fits a lot more with how we know them. And so when I hear that, I'm like, ah, that's what they were going for. Nothing wrong with the original. It was cool. Andy Sneap was king at that time. And yeah, sure. I can see artistically that this is probably what it was supposed to be. And so this makes a lot of sense. And so I've definitely experienced remixes or re-recordings where it solidifies the artist's vision, I guess, for the record, not like solidifies as in they didn't know what their vision was, but like it solidifies their vision as it pertains to that record in the eyes of the world. Like you're, you're hearing it the way that they actually kind of wish that it had sounded like or was like. Yeah, I think in this case, we didn't have this finite timeline where we had to complete it. We worked on it in sort of stages and we had plenty of time and it came out really easily this time. Whereas the first time we tracked the record, you know, we had this studio time booked. We needed to get it done within this specific window. We were still developing some ideas creatively there were no vocals written when we came in to record Leveler the first time. Whoa. That was all done on the spot. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that was hectic. And I remember. <laughs> yeah. So this time around, we had we had it all written. We just needed to lay it down as we were able to, you know, now 10 years later with all the experience that we have now. It, it was one of the most stress-free studio sessions I've ever been a part of in my life because there weren't a ton of big decisions to be made. And we all knew how the songs went. Everyone knew them, you know, inside and out. Matt, when he was tracking drums, I was amazed at how efficient he was at his drum tracking. You know, we, we had probably this week set aside where Matt was just going to track drums and he banged out like the whole album in two and a half days or something. And his takes were so good. Not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I shouldn't have been surprised either, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it was just different from how when we make new albums and we're working on songs for the first time, 
you know, there's a lot of bouncing ideas back and forth and, oh, let's try this, let's try that. And when you take away all of those possible creative options and you, you're just, you boil it down to what it is, which we already knew what it was, you can just crank and be a musician and play the best you can without having to worry about all the creative stuff. And I think that made for a really seamless and smooth studio experience while we're re-recording Leveler. It sounds amazing. So you said you guys are self-managed. Yeah. I remember you were at my house and Paul Conroy showed up and told you guys he was quitting music. I'm remembering this correctly, right? That definitely happened. I couldn't have said where it happened, but if you if you remember it, I'm sure it happened there. Okay, I, I'm not mi- I'm not mixing bands up is what I'm <laughs> what I'm asking. He was switching to uh, to MMA. Yeah, I was gonna say the sports. Yeah. So Paul Conroy, for people who don't know, is a very smart individual who was manager around that time, who was just like the manager in heavy music. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy, and I remember him flying down for the session and yeah he basically just told you guys he told me too because i had known him for a while um my band had done a bunch of his tours and just knew him that uh yeah he was moving on to mma i was thinking to myself man this band's gonna be okay but that's a that's a huge hit to take uh, to lose a manager like that because there's not that many great managers out there. There's not that many people in music that are as smart as that guy. So I was wondering how you guys were going to turn that into a positive, which I, I figured you would, but uh, but I was curious how that ended up developing, and now I hear you're self-managed. I'm sure that in the 10 years that uh, there's been different iterations of that, but... It's interesting to hear that that's what you've landed on. We started self-managing ourselves in 2016. When Paul stopped working with us, we were working with a gentleman named Chuck Andrews, who was one of my best friends. Yeah, amazing dude. When Paul stepped aside, Chuck just took over as our manager. Ah, got it. He was running day to day, um, and then he just took point on, on our project. And we worked with Chuck for years and had a great run. And during that time... I was always really involved in in the business side of things as I, I've always been since we started. I mean, I've, I, I am a self-proclaimed control freak with, with August Burns Red. I, I can't help myself. And I'm sure it's super annoying for my bandmates at, at a lot of times. But I also think that I've, by being so... Someone's got to be. Yeah, exactly. Someone's got to steer the ship. So in 2016, we parted ways with Chuck. It was just a mutual split. And he, he was like, yeah, you guys should just do this yourselves. Like we kind of like control freaked him out of the job. Basically, that's sort of what happened. So Brent, our other guitar player, and I co-manage the band now. And we've been doing, I think, a pretty good job with it for now five years, which is crazy. We've been doing it for five years. There's something to be said for the experience you learn along the way. I don't think that it would have been wise for us to self-manage from the get-go. No. We, yeah. <laughs> we needed someone to to help steer the ship. And someone who had more experience and people who knew the right people. But once we established all of those relationships and we learned all of that, gained all that experience for ourselves, it was just the natural move to handle all the management stuff ourselves. And I think that it's really been beneficial for the band because we can ask all these different resources that we have and all from networking over the years, we can ask other people questions and still be managing ourselves. And it just cuts down on a lot of the overhead as a business 
it, it benefits the five of us tremendously um, at, at the end of each year by keeping everything in-house and really close close to the best. So, and and I enjoy it. I, I love the business That's side of That's kind of important too. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly is. So, you know, it's funny because a big question for bands is always, when should I get a manager? And the answer is typically when there's more stuff to do than you can handle yourself. That's like the stock answer. And what's interesting about your situation is that that answer, that stock answer is for like a baby band. Uh, so what you guys have to do schedule wise was going on with you guys, like the merch business, the band business, like everything involved with the band, your size is way more intense than anything a baby band has to deal with. What's intense for a baby band is making it through really bad conditions and not breaking up. That's the intensity for a baby band, but for you guys, you've got a legitimate business on your hands that you need to keep running. There's a lot more stuff and you could easily make the excuse or not excuse, but you could easily say there's more than I have time in a day for here, but you figured out how to make it work. And so I'm curious is a, how do you divide your time and B, how do you make sure that that doesn't get in the way of the musical side of things? Brent, our other guitar player who manages with me, I guess we have our our areas that we focus on. I, I think I do a little bit more of the big picture kind of stuff. He's really good at the marketing and social media side of things. And then I do all the merchandising, but he does all the web store prep. Like the, these things go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And we're also to the point where if we need help with something, we are comfortable asking each other, like, hey, Brent, can you please take care of this task that I don't feel like I have time to do right now? And we also understand that we both have families. So we we understand the dynamic at home that needs to be balanced with us trying to manage this band because it is a lot. And sometimes he'll have more going on. So I need to pick up some slack and sometimes I'll have more going on. So he'll need to pick up some slack. It's just nice to have that working relationship where we understand what needs to get done. We have the same goals in mind and we're able to delegate to one another tasks that need to be done when we're not able to achieve them ourselves. Now, as far as the creative goes, I guess that's where things get a little more interesting because I handle the line share of the, the songwriting. And when I am songwriting, I'm probably a little less involved managerially speaking, but... It's also usually during a time where we don't have as much going on as a band and I can focus on writing. So things are a little bit less hectic from a business standpoint when we're in that writing mode. It's not going to be like, okay, this chunk of time in the year is going to be set aside for writing. I'm going to have to get a record done between May and August. It's more like, okay, here's a pocket of time, a couple of weeks, I can do some writing and then we're going to get into this next project or setting up this next tour or live stream or whatever. And then when that's done, okay, cool. Now I have some more time to be creative and work on the writing side of things while the band mm-hmm. business is a little less busy. So it sounds to me like people know their roles. Absolutely. Very, very well. You know, not to the point of telling each other to just stay out of each other's way, but people's roles are defined, but you're still willing to help each other out or you trust each other to ask someone else to fill in the gaps when you're unable to. So it just sounds to me like great communication, great understanding of each other's roles, plus actually having 
learned the skills along the way, which is super, super, super important too. Lots of practice for sure. Yeah, exactly. I do believe that a lot of this stuff is impossible to learn without doing it. There's no real book that can actually show you how to be in a successful band. Like, you know, there's books that describe how the indus music industry works and they're not wrong, but they're vastly incomplete. And every band is super unique. It's like its own little entity and um, a little universe. And what works for one band might not work for another. So it's one of these things that it's just impossible to know without doing it yourself and getting to a certain point in your career where you've already experienced enough things to be able to pull it off. What I just said probably sounds super daunting to somebody in a local band who's uh, trying to get places. So before you had a manager, before you had a label, what was the mindset about getting to that point? We were busting it as hard then as we are now. Actually, maybe even harder with you know all the sweat equity that we were putting into what we were doing. When we started out, I was promoting local shows and bringing national tours into play our local American Legion Hall just so August Burns Red would have an opportunity to Smart. play with bands that mattered, mm -hmm. you know? And I would take all the money made if there was money to be made and reinvest it back into August Burns Red. So we bought our first van off of that. We bought like our first guitar cabs off of promoting shows. And I made a lot of relationships within the music industry early on by networking. For instance, there was that band Reflux. I don't oh, know if damn. you guys remember the going band. Back. Yeah. This is going back. Sure. I mean, we started we started playing in 2003, but I got in with Ash uh, Abelson, who owns Sumerian Records now, but he was singing for a, a metal band called Reflux. That Tosin uh, was in. Yeah. Tosin from Abelson. And Evan Leaders Brewer band. as well. Yep. Evan Brewer and the guy from Circus Survive on drums, right? Can't remember his name. Uh, the drummer's name was Vinny at the time. I don't know if he... I don't know what he went on to do, but they were all so talented. What a awesome, super talented, fun band to watch. Anyways, so I got in with Ash, who was running his own booking agency called EE Booking at the time. And he would email me and be like, hey, I got this tour coming through. Do you want to do a show? And of course, I was like, yes, of course. And that relationship just grew to the point where like we were we were buds with, with Reflux and we'd put them up when they came through town. And we were even supposed to tour with them in 2006, but our singer who was on our first record, Thrill Seeker, quit the band and we weren't able to, to do that tour as a result. Um, but there were just a lot of relationships made. I even booked shows for Matt Pike, who was our booking agent, our first real booking agent. Before we were ever on his radar, I was just like some kid who would promote shows for his hardcore mm -hmm. tours that would come through Lancaster. So I don't know. Networking is really important and you got to bust it if you want to get your band off the ground. Like I, maybe things are a lot different now, 18 years later from when I started my band, but <laughs> I think there's still a lot of hard work and grinding that's going to, that has to go into getting things established. So I think that the type of grind you have to do might've changed, but the fact that you have to grind has not changed. Yeah. There's got no to grind on social that. media now. <laughs> Maybe it's more of a internet grind than it was. Uh... Well, there, yeah, there is more of an internet grind for sure. The internet grind was there though, still back in 2003, but just not maybe as much focus. 
on it. The technology wasn't where it's at now, so there weren't the kinds of platforms. You say that, but there was, I don't know about the US, but in the UK, um, MySpace was a pretty big thing and quite a few bands that... uh, Oh, MySpace was big here. Yeah, it was still around today that were around from that period of time. I mean, you know, Bring Me the Horizon, Enter Shikari, like they were pretty large on MySpace and grinded exactly the way that, that you did, JB. But yeah, I mean, it was still there, just maybe the focus has shifted from touring as much and now you can do a lot of it with social media one thing that's remained the same is that uh that bands could get big on myspace and then start playing shows and get signed and now yeah you can still get big on the internet and then start doing the band stuff but the big difference is there weren't like seven different viable platforms that you could use back in 2005. Like, yeah, you had MySpace, but you didn't have MySpace and then also YouTube and then also Instagram and then also Twitch and then also Patreon and then also TikTok. You didn't have that. No, of course not. Yeah. So it's different. Like there is less of a need, I think now for a band to, so back then bands could do MySpace, but they also had to play shows a lot. A lot, a lot. I think there's less of a need for that, but still, there still needs to be a ridiculous amount of grind, I think. There's no way around that because there's so many people who want to do it. There's always someone who's willing to work harder, you know? Yes, (laughs) always. And there always has been, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so networking is an interesting topic because uh, it gets a bad name. It gets a bad rep, I think, because, because of people's experiences at places like NAMM or networking conferences like it gets a really cheesy rap but when it comes down to it where would our careers be without networking doesn't have to be this bad thing negative no i mean it's it happened very organically for for us Mm -hmm. we weren't in it to network that was sort of a bonus i mean i was booking bands that i cared about when i was when i was young i wanted to i wanted august burns red to get to play with Evergreen Terrace and Orm Broken Wings and bands like that. And I just naturally also got to interact with these bands because I was promoting the show. And you're just going to develop relationships organically as a result of that. So going to a networking conference, yeah, that doesn't feel super organic. No. But the way we were doing things, we were meeting lots of people and quote unquote networking hard and it felt natural and it was fun. And we were making friends and it was all very cool. Well, the thing that I always tell people when they ask me about networking is that if you're asking, you're already overthinking it because at least in my experience, the networking that has paid off the most has literally just been because I've made friends with people over a long period of time. And then something happens where there's an opportunity for us to work together and we know each other. Or I can approach them about something 10 years later because we know each other and our previous interactions have always been good. And that's that's all it is. There's no no end in mind, no goal out of us becoming friends or us meeting. Like we met, you know, in the kind of scenario where you were meeting people. Like I wasn't a promoter, but like I would meet people through the studio, my old studio in Atlanta or wherever. Um, and just by organically keeping the relationship going, even not that much, even once every five years or whatever, 
uh, it led to my network being uh, fruitful. But it never came from giving people business cards at NAM or that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's got to be organic. And I think that the key here is you were doing something valuable for people. A non-shady person being a promoter in a town, <laughs> that's already a valuable <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> Those early 2000s as well were pretty golden years for shows and talks as well. It was like when it really blew up for this style of music, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just remember 2004 to 2007, it was particularly busy. Shows all the time. In fact, I actually saw your band in 2005, JB, as well, um, with Misery Signals and Amure going back. Oh, that was that was 2008. I don't mean to correct you. Was it actually that but late? That, that, Damn. That was, our, that was our first time to Europe. Yeah, it was in 2008. I thought it was 2005. Damn, I feel older now. <laughs> no, that's, I, I, I apologize for that. <laughs> there were a lot of tours back in 2003 and four, and that's why... Uh, person who's a good promoter who was in the shady stood out exactly always like i remember all of them from those days because there weren't so that little. many of them <laughs> <laughs> there weren't that many of them yeah the key though is a it was organic and b you were doing something useful to help people out booking them letting them stay with you those things matter and so when people ask about networking more than anything my advice to them is a just try to make friends b try to be do something useful for people what is it how can you actually help them out and not in a way where you force your help on them but what can you do that will actually be useful for the scene or for them where uh you'll develop a positive relationship just as a result of interacting and providing something that they really could utilize yep i totally agree with that cool well JB, I think it's a good place to uh, end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure catching up with you too. And Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to you. That was fun. So interesting to hear about a re-recording of something that I was involved with. <laughs> Especially <laughs> if, it, if it was made better, which yeah, by, totally. you know, by the sound of it, it was. I heard the new mixes. They sound pretty fucking great. They do. So uh, what can I say? <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty bad when uh, a band remix an album that necessarily didn't need doing. I have one that always comes to mind. Um, and I still love the original version of it. But most people like the remix. And it's Meshuggah's Nothing. Interesting. I just didn't think it needed to be mixed again. But I thought it was good. It's one of those things that it's so personal because I hear a lot of remixes and... Uh, I don't understand, but I heard the stuff that they did with with Leveler and was like, yeah, I get it. I really do. It sounds so much more up to date now. I guess that's the problem with 10 years as well in between is that regardless, like how many albums can you think from 10 years ago that still sound relevant now? Well, depends on the style, right? Yeah, I think so. Depends on the style and depends on the production choices that they made back in the day. Um, I think that back around 2010, 2011, a lot of metal productions had a very dateable kind of quality to them. I would agree with you because if you go back a further 10 years, there's albums from the early 2000s that still 
sound great now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And there's still some albums that sound great from 2010, but just there was something in the water in the way that samples were being used or whatever that just very much make things from a certain era sound like that era. And <laughs> yes, I think if the artist feels like their art, their music is something that doesn't need to be basically pigeonholed into a certain era, like if they feel that strongly to where they want to redo it and it does come out better, yeah, then I guess they were right. Yeah. You can't really fault them for that. And also, no. they didn't just remix this album. They did re-record. No, they redid it, reworked it. And I think that that's a smart move if you want to redo a record, especially if you're going to make changes. If you're recording the exact same thing, the likelihood is it's probably going to come out worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, I've, I've had a point where I've recorded demos and then the final thing never came out quite as good from the demo. So there is that problem that you would probably get if you didn't change the songs in some way. Yeah, I think so. But then again, people might freak out because the songs are different, but I don't know. What I heard sounded great. So what can I say? <laughs> it was pretty, pretty interesting when he was chatting about how much he doesn't play guitar. Yes. For the style and for the complexity of August Burns Red, it's quite remarkable. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, he focuses on his real strength, which is writing. Can't argue with that. Got some great songs from, from August Burns read over the years. Yeah, I think that what is important, though, really, really important, is that he does do something that keeps him productive and playing a lot. Yeah. He doesn't spend his time beating his head into the wall with things that uh, aren't going to keep him inspired and motivated and into it. So he goes down the path that inspires him to do the most work. And I think that's what matters. Definitely. Yeah. And obviously while he's writing, he's still working on his skill set. It's just a different approach to that skill set rather than drilling. It's all about finding new muscle memories and chord shapes and different shapes. So in a way it is practice. I know that whenever I've been in time periods where I'm writing at the guitar a lot, I definitely will get better. I won't get better as fast as I do when I'm drilling, but I'll still get better and I'll get better in a different way. It's yeah. like my mind will be expanded. Yeah, I've noticed so that. It's not all about technical. Technical isn't the only measure of better. No, technical is literally the skill set to become a better songwriter. It's so that you don't have any limitations. That's kind of the whole, that's the way I always saw skills on the guitar is that I didn't have to really try as hard as maybe it would have been if I didn't have that particular skill. Oh, you mean try as hard as in you have an idea and you want to translate it with your hands. Yeah. And either it will come easily because you have technique to spare or you're going to halfway be able to get it out, maybe not even entirely accurately because your level of technical ability is a um, like a roadblock. Yeah, progress. Exactly. That's the way that I always saw skills on the guitar is it was a means to get what's either in my head or what I'm trying to write. That's why I practiced. That's why I drilled. I mean, A, my band's shit was hard to play, so I had to. <laughs> but I also drilled so that when writing stuff, I wouldn't get to this point where I hit a wall technically. 
Exactly. Like hit a wall that I couldn't get past because I wasn't going to do things like slow shit down or program the guitars in and, you know, nothing against people who do, but that technology wasn't even good when I was doing this stuff. So it wasn't even an option. Um, So had to keep my playing at a certain level of skill just to be able to, just to be able to pull off what was required. Um, And I'm a player that my priority was always writing. I, I come from that same mentality as JB, but I guess I just, I drilled a little bit harder just because the music was fucking hard as shit. <laughs> just be real. Yeah. There's no no way that I could do it otherwise. And uh, it's like torture, isn't it, in a way? <laughs> kind you, of. Yeah. But what's more torture is not being able to keep up with the down picking on stage. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that is even worse. It's more embarrassing, at least if you've got the skill set and you can nail it. If you make a mistake, then that can be fixed to the next day. Exactly like JB said. He makes mistakes live still and just has to drill it just for a couple of times through at gigs. Yeah. You know, I used to have something kind of like the schedule where I knew that I could keep my playing up um, in 20 or 30 minutes a day, sometimes a little longer if I wanted to. But I had my technical practice down to the 20 minute version or the 30 or the 40 minute version. And depending on how the day would go, I know that if I would just go through that set of exercises once, that I'm good. At least I'm not going to get worse that day. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I'll probably get better. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what you can actually do in 20 minutes if it's the right focus. I mean, even when we were filming some of the stuff for Riffard, I mean, you probably saw that I was just getting better and better by the day. Oh yeah. Just by, just by playing the exercises over and over for filming. But yeah, in 20 minutes a day in a week, you could have drastically improved everything about your playing as long as you're focusing on the right thing. Yeah. And what I meant by schedule is that over at riffhard.com, we have a schedule called the schedule <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that give, that breaks down how to approach the content on the site in uh, three ways, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, or 60 minutes a day. Is that accurate? Very accurate, yeah. You can even, if you wanted to, because you've got the set of exercises there in the schedule, you can do it for as much time as you want. The idea behind it is, though, is just to get into a routine of actually doing it because have a routine, do it for that amount of time a day, you'll get results. Yeah. What's cool about the schedule, too, is it changes. So Every single week. Yeah. Every single week. So you don't have the chance to get stale on the exercises. Or comfortable. And even if you do get comfortable with some of the exercises, then there's diff- many different variations of each exercise. And the idea behind the exercises is that they're never meant to get any easier. Yeah, that's one of the tricks to always getting better is to never let yourself get comfortable. Exactly. And with that, I just want to say thanks for uh, hanging out. It's been a pleasure as always. I bid you farewell. See ya. (laughs) See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.